0: Hello, this is Manny Ramos, your host of Rise Up, real issues and stories of every one of us podcast. First, let me talk about who we are. I'm Mani Ramos, a board member of PNAA and a past president of the Philippine Nurses Association of Central Florida. I'm a professor of nursing at Valencia College in Orlando and an adjunct faculty at William Patterson University. With me today is my co-host Mindy Ofiana. Mindy?
1: Thank you, Manny. Welcome, everyone. I'm Mindy Ofiana, Legislative Committee Chair for PNAA and a corresponding secretary for PNAA Foundation and past president for PNA Southern California. Before my retirement, I served as both as a Chief Operations Officer and Chief Nursing Officer at one of the medical centers owned by KPC Group of Companies. Manny?
0: Thank you, Mindy. We're honored to join us today on Rise Up, Madeline Yu, 20th PNAA president. Madeline Yu served as the president of the Philippine Nurses Association of America in 2018 to 2020. Before retirement, Madeline was the nursing director of the post-anesthesia care unit at St. Barnabas Medical Center in New Jersey. Madeline graduated from the University of the Philippines School of Nursing. She completed her master's in nursing education Master's in Nursing Administration at Seton Hall University, earning the highest award for leadership, the Sarah Erickson Award. Good evening, Madeline. Welcome to Rise Up.
2: Good evening, Manny. Good evening, Mindy.
0: So, Madeline, could you tell us a little bit about growing up in the Philippines?
2: Oh, uh, I grew up with my grandparents. I was one of 13 children. Oh, wow. So (laughs) as young as I was, I realized that, you know, I needed education for some reason. I I, right away, I recognized I needed education. And with many siblings, you were vying for attention from your parents. (laughs) So when I was small, my grandparents took me in, Uh me and my two brothers. And um, they raised us up. They mentored us. And my grandpa was a a school principal, and my Mm. grandmother was a teacher. Mm. Uh So it was a very educational environment (laughs) growing up. Um, No comics allowed, (laughs) only encyclopedia, Reader's Digest, no other magazines. And grandpa and grandma always had eyes on how I did in school. (sighs) So, one funny story I could tell you is when I was in high school at the University of the Philippines in Iloilo, Mm -hmm. my papa, my grandpa would come to the school to check on my grades. That's how serious it was. So, I had no choice but to behave. (laughs) So, that was the kind of growing up that I did and um, uh, being one of 13 siblings, I Uh know that I had to go to school. I had to accomplish this much to really pull myself up. And with good mentoring from my grandparents, I succeeded in doing that by earning scholarships mm-hmm. at UP High School in Iloilo mm-hmm. uh-huh. and at UPPGH School of Nursing in Manila. So thank you to the University of the Philippines for giving me the opportunity to reach my dreams. I had a very good foundation. So thank you for asking. So
1: you're surrounded by educators. Well, My mom is also a a teacher, in fact, a professor and in uh, National Teachers College. Why did you choose a career in nursing instead of being a teacher?
2: For silly reasons at that time. The nurse's uniform was so pretty, Ah. (laughs) white starch uniform with a cap, and they looked so respectable. No one in my family was a nurse. My family was mostly educators and bankers, people who worked in the banking industry, Mm -hmm. and no one was in healthcare. So, growing up, you had groups of people that you called your close Mm -hmm. friends, and we didn't know what to take up. Nursing looked attractive. So, when my friends in college started to enroll in nursing, we all enrolled in nursing. But there's no uh, (laughs) looking back. I believe we made the right Mm -hmm. choice because as we mature and as we grow older, I realized that If you wanted to be a teacher, you could still teach in nursing and look at what Professor Manny Ramos is doing. Look at what we right, Mindy as administrators are doing. We still teach on a daily basis and impart our skills to the younger ones and mentor them. So you can really attain a lot of stuff in Mm -hmm. nursing and and realizing it as we grew professionally, there are so many tracks mm-hmm. that you can mm-hmm. follow in nursing. It's truly up to you what you want to do and where you think the most impact mm-hmm. is that you That's can true. make.
0: So from graduating from the University of the Philippines School of Nursing, and then uh, you, you ended up here. So what, what brought you to the USA, uh, Madeline? <laughs>
2: I think our training in UP trained us to be very idealistic. (laughs) Ma ki baka (laughs) Yeah, I remember that. You really, um, uh, work towards the improvement of everybody, the betterment of everybody. What mm-hmm. is good for the buy-in, What's good for the community? Looking back, mo- uh, giving forward, all the things that you do to make sure that everybody else benefits, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So we grew up at a time of martial law, Manny and Mindy. Yeah. If you realize, that's uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. yes. right. So yes. politics also shaped us, mm-hmm. and growing up and educating ourselves we realized that life is not all about money that you would gain or honors that you will have or the profession that you will have, but it's something else that you would wish to have for you and for the rest of the mm-hmm. family. And for me, politics at that time was so crazy back home. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of unrest. And when I left in 1986, I was part of those who protested in EDSA. So, you know, you go to the streets, you do all the rallies and, you know, you help in in truly making a difference and giving Mm -hmm. your own personal contributions. And to me at that time, I realized that by staying in the Philippines, I might not be able to send my own children to school. I may not be able to afford to send all four of them to Mm -hmm. school, but probably in the U.S. where I could earn a little bit more money and the environment is more conducive and the children have more opportunities, my husband and I decided to immigrate to the U.S.A. Mm-hmm. and uh, realize our dra- dreams and fulfill our professions in the U.S. and at the same time giving our children our children better chances in life and at the same time also Whatever we can afford, as most of us do, we send money back home Mm -hmm. and still help people back home, help our families, and again, paying forward. We are so lucky that we are in uh, where we are right now. We're all professionals. We're in the nursing profession, and we're able to help people. So to me, it's a lot of Mm win-win in coming here. You really do not turn your back to the Philippines. You continue to help our countrymen, even if we're here. And I'm sure it works for the two of you also. Yes. And many of us who are uh, Filipino nurse, nurses practicing here in the I US. Know. So
1: did, did you go directly to New Jersey or do you went to another state?
2: I started in Kansas City, Missouri. Like me. Oh. And nothing against <laughs> people in Missouri, but the winter is so cold. The summers are too hot. <laughs> <laughs> and i was just too homesick that every 6 hours i went home to make sure i you know i bonded again with my family it was i was a very young mother then and all i did was plan to go home in the next 6 oh. months so it was a lot of going back and forth until i finally settled in new jersey in 1986 oh. I like where we are right mm-hmm. now only because the seasons there are four seasons okay. and they are mild yeah. the winters are not as crazy as Kansas City <laughs> and the summers are not as hot and 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 I'm in the middle of where Broadway is or the Atlantic yeah. mm-hmm. the the shore and you know every everywhere seems to be drivable mm-hmm. So I enjoyed living in New Jersey. I still continue to do so. And my family and I have been here for the last 30 years.
0: So um, in New Jersey, was that the time that you founded one of the subchapters of PNAA?
2: Yes. (laughs) As a nurse at Newark Beth Israel Medical Center, my nurse manager at the time in CCU gave us no choice. Here, mm. you are members of the Philippine Nurses Association, give me your $25 and your <laughs> members. I didn't even understand what what PNA was all about. And uh, at that time it wasn't where I thought a professional organization would be. So when we became members, we said, we're going to make it as professional as we could make it. Let's make it more educational. Let's make it something where... People would like to join because Mm -hmm. it truly uh, elevated the nurses. Mm -hmm. We truly would like to follow what the mission Mm -hmm. of the PNA and PNAA was, which is to improve the image and the welfare of the Filipino nurse. So we focus a lot on education, scholarship, and Mm -hmm. all that kind of mentorship rather than the social activities that it was known for in the Mm -hmm. past. So uh, as Mindy was saying, I, I got truly involved to the point that I thought, you know, um, I could start a sub-chapter where New Jersey was first in doing so. We already had the Ocean subchapter, and then when I joined, I believe there was about five or six other subchapters, so I opened the Essex um, County subchapter. And now it's thriving. It's very Mm -hmm. dynamic. And I believe right now PNA NJ has about 11 subchapters. And I I believe it is the best model for Mm -hmm. chapters because as Mm -hmm. of now, New Jersey still has the highest number of members among the chapters of PNA America. It's dynamic. There's a lot of motiv- motivated nurses. And if you truly believe in what you're doing, then you can make a difference in carrying out your mission.
1: A lot of um, PNAA presidents, I believe, came from um, New Jersey. So I believe I'm number yes, five. So there's a lot of you there. I think so. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> I want to transition to something that I hope you will be comfortable talk about. It's um, okay. your experience with COVID. Um, I know it's been known that you have um, been through a lot during the pandemic crisis. Can you share with us how this got
2: started? As you know, my, my uh, term in PNA America was in 2018 to 2020. Mm-hmm. And 2020 would culminate my presidency, yeah. right? We usually mm-hmm. end July to July. So July of 2020, I was looking forward to it. It would be the end of a very hectic, active administration, mm-hmm. which the two of you yeah. were part of. Yes. enjoyed our fun and really, really dynamic administration. And 2020 came, and I was really looking forward to it because we would be having the international convention in Boracay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i I brought the p n a a national conven international convention to Burakai in calibo Aklan because that is my favorite spot ever. It is my Good. husband's hometown, oh. and I believe Burakai Beach is the number one beach in the whole wide world with its white sand so and it was the first time that we brought an international convention to the beach mm-hmm. side and it mm-hmm. was exciting, so as you both know, planning for any convention. Much more an international convention is very difficult, but you know it can be done and it can mm-hmm. be done very well. So, with our partners, with uh, PNA Philippines and Association of Deans and Colleges in the Philippines and the CFO in the Philippines, we were able to host a very successful international convention in Boracay, yeah. and um, uh, and we were focusing on climate. Health at that mm-hmm. point, planetary health. And it was, and I believe we have about 400 attendees. Mm-hmm. Now, going into the convention, if you remember, Taal volcano yeah. erupted. Yes. So sure. it was scary, but we were able to come to the Philippines, even with a lot of detours along the way. Uh-huh. And while we were having our convention, we started to hear about the COVID virus. We were right. starting to hear about the coronavirus, but yeah. in our mind, it's, it's far. That's a, that's a, that's a virus that was believed to start in Wuhan, China. And that's what the news that we received. But, you know, it wasn't near us. So we're saying, no, I I believe we're safe here in a very small island in the Philippines. So we carried Mm -hmm. on and we continued with our reunions and uh, family uh, events and Mm -hmm. enjoyed our hometown visit in the Philippines. And going back, we now started to hear more and more. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, there are the, there are the cases are getting more, um, In China, in Europe, it started in Italy and going back to the US, we even changed our itinerary because now we did not want to pass by Hong Mm -hmm. Kong. Mm -hmm. And then back to Newark, New mm-hmm. Jersey, right. where we purchased another ticket from Manila straight to JFK. So there would be no stopovers no. in Hong yeah. Kong. And we were already using our N95 mask, mm-hmm. which we brought because of the Taal mm-hmm. eruption. We right. brought N95 mask because of those ashes that were falling in Manila, not for any coronavirus. Coronavirus right. came later on. But on our way back in the plane, we were already using our masks uh, nonstop for 15 Mm -hmm. hours. So as we came, as I came back to New Jersey, more and more cases were um, reported. Mm -hmm. Deaths were reported. The Northeast was hard hit. But at that time... That was in March. As we came back, remember we came back 1st of February, Mm -hmm. 1st or 2nd week of February. I still carried on with my role as PNAA president at the time. We inducted the the, um, uh, founding officers of Big Island, Hawaii, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then we went to Georgia to induct the new president of PNAA Georgia. That was in February and in the first week of March. So my very last trip as PNAA president was in Georgia Mm -hmm. and we were already hearing stuff like uh, there's, there's, there's a run for toilet papers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The toilet papers were being uh, rationed in Hawaii already. So I was telling people in Georgia that this is happening in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. So what are you hearing? They said they're also starting to hear things. Mm-hmm. But there was no such thing as distancing yet or quarantining at that time. Right. As I came home from Georgia on March 8th, that's when it was a daily event because the Northeast was hit really hard. Mm-hmm. New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. The deaths, yeah. the deaths and the cases were high right away because we have so many international airports mm-hmm. here. So you don't know who had it. Yeah, We all know it was airborne. We all got scared. We started to use the mask. We started to distance and that's when we started to hear, quarantining, and then it was a daily event of what's happening in the world, what's happening in Spain, in Italy, in other places where the countries were closed. Everyone was really observing lockdowns. Uh So it was a scary time. It was a scary event, and we started to do everything that was uh, advised by the CDC. Hand washing, put your mask on, uh, put your distance, quarantine. We observed all that. At this point, I was already retired, so I stayed home, but uh-huh. my husband was going to work. So every day he observed everything, also. He would be the one to go to the groceries early in the morning uh, because I was the one staying at home. And then we wash, as you were all probably doing too, we washed the groceries, yeah. we wiped <laughs> right. everything down. We were observant of everything that CDC was telling us to do. So we were hearing this and we were afraid. It was a scary time. And we started to say, so what's going on with the rest of the chapters? Mm -hmm. And I believe that was the start of the COVID task force. Mm -hmm. Uh Us asking what's going on in each chapter? Who is getting sick? Do you know Mm -hmm. of anyone getting sick? Did anyone die from your chapter? What are you hearing? What are you doing? And we started to gather data. That was the start of the now formally known as the COVID task force, which we are still continuing to do Mm -hmm. right now. So back to my family story. On the the last Sunday of March, my husband and I were watching television, Mm -hmm. as we usually do on a Sunday after church. We eat lunch and then we watch TV. And then my, my children FaceTimed with me. And uh, with us, and uh, all of a sudden, the children said, Mom, that doesn't look good. And I said, What do you mean he doesn't look good? We're just talking. We were just talking. He said, Look at him. And I looked at him, and he, was, he had his eyes closed, and he does that. He naps after we <laughs> eat, and we watch TV, and he would doze off for the afternoon. But that's useful to me. It did not alarm me. Mm -hmm. The children said, they continue to say, he doesn't look good. Wake him up, and which I did. At Mm -hmm. that time, he was already unresponsive. Uh No symptoms, no nothing, no warnings. We were just having our usual afternoon um, event at home, watching TV after dinner, and he was napping, and I was chatting or checking my phone, something like that. And talking to the children and he was unresponsive. So the children called 911, an ambulance came and picked him up and I was just shocked. Mm -hmm. Like, what is going on? Why is he not waking up? So the ambulance brought him to St. Barnabas Medical Center where I worked Mm -hmm. and they wouldn't let me in the ambulance. Mm -hmm. They told me that if I went, I would also be admitted as a patient. And they asked me, are you a patient too? I said, I don't think mm-hmm. so. No, I'm not. Mm-hmm. So they admitted him. And apparently at this time, he was hypoxemic. Mm-hmm. And um, we were already hearing uh, signs and symptoms of COVID and TB. You would have hypo- hypoxemia. You wouldn't have any taste from your mouth. You'd mm-hmm. be having fever, diarrhea, all all, all those things. But right. he didn't have any. Nothing. Mm-hmm. Just He just became unresponsive all of a sudden. When he went to the hospital, they gave him high-flow oxygen, and he woke up. Mm -hmm. So he was awake for the next five days. They woke him up. He was talking to us. He was texting me and the children. We were FaceTiming like nothing. But, of course, the scare is there, Mm -hmm. and we couldn't visit him. No one Mm -hmm. was allowed to visit. The next Sunday, the children called the ambulance for me. Because now it's my turn to be hypoxemic Mm -hmm. and I was feeling the signs and symptoms Mm -hmm. of COVID. So while he was in the hospital, in the ICU, because after five days, he texted me that his oxygen is still low and they're going to intubate him. Mm -hmm. He was texting me. So that was the last text I got from him. And of course, I saved it and I couldn't talk to him anymore. I couldn't chat with him because I'm sure they already, uh, he was already um, under anesthesia and they intubated him and I wasn't allowed to go in at all. So when I was admitted the next Sunday, I wasn't, my symptoms were not severe at all. I had no fever, but my oxygen was also bordering on the nineties. My auto sat, yeah. it didn't really go down to the eighties. And I'm sure, I think my husband's auto sat were in the eighties and mine mm-hmm. was in the nineties. So. So I was really doing everything I could to make sure it went up. And uh, I I didn't have much of the symptoms. I had all the symptoms, but they're Mm -hmm. not grave. They're not severe at all. So I was awake all the time, worrying about him all the time. And that's when you guys heard that we both were in the hospital. Mm -hmm. PNAA was informed and you guys started to pray for us, which I believed helped so much in our journey with covid it truly helped mm-hmm. because i do remember it was holy week when i was in the hospital mm-hmm. and i and you guys were praying for me every night and praying for my husband on and i and i always tell this story on the good friday evening i felt lifted by your prayers i truly felt lifted and he was in the icu i couldn't visit And I think I was feeling a little better, but it was still a scary moment because Mm -hmm. the nurses, all the nurses knew me because I worked there. They would tell me, Madeline, the patient on your left died Mm -hmm. yesterday. The patient on your right died the other day. And in my mind, I'm next. I am truly next because almost everyone is dying. But in my mind, I cannot die. I shouldn't die because I have to take care of my husband when I go home. Mm -hmm. I must survive because I have, I'm the nurse. I have to take care of him. So with your prayers and my will to get better, the next day there was a rainbow in front of my hospital window. Oh. So I said to myself, I am going to oh. live. I am so going to live. And then Easter Sunday, I was released from the hospital. Mm-hmm. My husband remained in the ICU and um, the hospital personnel from doctors to nurses and everybody was giving me updates almost every hour because they knew me. Mm -hmm. They knew that it was my husband. And he was even in an OR suite because the ICUs were full to the brim. Mm -hmm. There was nowhere to put ICU Mm -hmm. patients anymore. He was in an OR suite for, I believe, over a week Mm-hmm. And some of the ICU patients had a, were overflown in the med search mm-hmm. areas or in the telemetry areas. My, my neighbors where I was were all ICU patients. I was, I believe, I was the better patient because mm-hmm. my symptoms were not as bad. Although yeah. I felt dying at one of those days because everything seems to be, you know, my energy seems mm-hmm. to be draining from me. And, and, and truly, you cannot taste anything. Mm-hmm. Everything that was given to me tastes like cardboard. So you truly do not have any appetite because you're eating cardboard. Mm-hmm. But I did survive. And mm-hmm. I felt guilty about it. I felt good, grateful, but guilty that I survived. After the second week, when they couldn't extubate my husband after proning him and doing mm-hmm. all these exercises, it started to worry me. See, my training in Newark, at Newark Beth Israel Medical Center was as a cardiac nurse, mm-hmm. a transplant nurse. And I know the ICU, CCU, CTICU very well. And when the, a patient is started and levo-fed, oh, <laughs> that's a scary mm-hmm. thought already. And I know that he was on many drips already. And I know that they were trying their best to adjust the ventilators and all that. And there was nothing. After two and a half weeks, my heart was starting to sink. I am so Mm -hmm. nervous now. I'm alone at home because there were only two of us uh, in the house and he was in ICU. And on the third week, they still couldn't extubate him. Mm -hmm. And my prayers were just not morning and night. I believe my prayers was almost every hour at this point. And I was so scared and nervous. And I didn't know what to do. Yeah. You, you truly do not know what to do. Because, of course, the, all the children also were asking, how's dad? How's everything? Why don't you tell them this? Why don't you tell them that? And, mm-hmm. and I know that the, he was very well taken care of. These are the doctors I worked with for so many years. And they know it was my husband in that bed. Now you know that when your loved one in the hospital, they wouldn't let you in, right? Mm -hmm. But on April 21, they called me and said, Madeline, would you like to come in? Mm -hmm. So in my mind, I think this is the end because they're asking me to come in. Only Mm -hmm. because, out of respect, because I worked there for Mm -hmm. many, many years. So they asked me to come to ICU and truly he was already declining. So of course, I had the wonderful privilege of holding his hand until he died. So I was there in ICU for three hours. We prayed FaceTime with the kids. Uh, everybody was there for me. And I just felt lucky that I could be there. I don't know how anyone could die alone because that would be the the worst situation ever. I was able to hold his hand and I was Really, really grateful for that. Oh. So he died in April 21, and I didn't know what to do. I was still too weak. I still had COVID. Mm-hmm. I was still recovering and all these questions and things that you need to do. Uh, funeral and arrangements, what oh. do I do? The children are asking, we don't know what to do. And I did, my children couldn't even come and hug me mm-hmm. that their father was dead. They couldn't even come to my house. They didn't come to the backyard to, 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 to just say, how, mm-hmm. how are you, mom, and all that. And everyone in PA, New Jersey, just cared for me. So every morning I woke up, there would be food outside my door. There would be flowers. There would be fruits. There would be letters. There would Mm -hmm. be cards. There was just so much to do, but I didn't know what to do. I I had no strength and all that. And I believe that what saved me is the prayers. Mm -hmm. You praying for me and my will to live also because I don't think it would be fair if I was gone, if I also left the children, Mm -hmm. it would be not fair. Because it would have been so easy to say that now that he's gone, I I really don't have any more will to live. Uh, We've Mm -hmm. been married 42 years, four children, four grandchildren, and I've known him for the last 50 years. I was 17 when we started dating, and how how could he be gone, you know? Mm -hmm. It was so difficult. And as a nurse... Remember, we always advise patients about the steps in uh, grieving, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. I don't know how many days or weeks you spend in each one, but I believe I just lingered in denial and anger. Mm -hmm. I was so angry. I I thought somebody robbed me of something. How could he be gone? It's impossible. How could he be gone? How could he be away when there were so many plans for us to enjoy life together, now that we've done the hard part? it's mm-hmm. now, We're now ready to retire and smell the roses, mm-hmm. right? But I guess what helped me again is I prayed hard. I prayed so hard that I realized it's not my will, mm-hmm. it is God's will, and I have to accept it. So it was very difficult, very painful, and I still have to rem- remember I have a role to play. I'm still the president of PNAA, mm-hmm. and thank you, Mary Joy Garcia Dia, for stepping up and being in my shoes while I was sick. And thank you to the E B and you guys and all the members for praying for me and carrying on and making sure the nurses were okay. So, yeah. as I said, we started the COVID task force when COVID started and we continued to do it because we knew it was important. So first the PPE and then the physical needs of nurses, then the spiritual, psychosocial, Mm -hmm. um, community, health equity, and how do we influence policy. We truly morphed into that and we still carry on with that because it's still important and it's still happening. Mm -hmm. I saw on TV today that the deaths in the U.S. has gone up now to 800,000 oh, right. deaths due to COVID. I know. Last year when they announced that it was 500,000, I could not believe the immense, immense disaster that it created mm-hmm. in us, mm-hmm. in, in humanity. And I didn't know that my husband would be t- taken right away With no warnings whatsoever, Mm -hmm. no goodbyes, nothing. So I believe that was the most painful part. Mm -hmm. Now it's been a year and a half. It's still painful. But as I said to you, Manny, uh, the edges are less sharp. Right. Yes, the pain is still there. Yes, the sorrow is still there. But I am so grateful to my children, my family who circles me with hugs and prayers all the time and with their presence. And you guys, you've been a family, my second family to me. And I'm really, really grateful because without the connections, without the physical, and even if it's not face to face, just being busy helps a lot, the prayers, the projects, being busy with helping others. So I really shared my story with a lot of people because I'm not special. There's 800,000 people who died. Mm -hmm. So my family story is not special. It affected a lot of us. And I'm sure many, many of us are hurting, Mm -hmm. like how it hurt my family. But again... We have to rise, get up, move up, and think of what else we can do so the experience of others are not as hurtful mm-hmm. and that we could recover. We can stick, still pick ourselves up. So many organizations has, have asked me to speak, and I did, and it was difficult. It's getting better. I could share mm-hmm. better, but it's still raw. And I believe we are resilient as a people, we are resilient as nurses, we are resilient as mothers, and it's so important to make sure that the will to survive is still there and the, work and the will to carry on is still there. I am so proud of the work that the COVID Task Force of PNA America has done for nurses, for families. And for communities, I am so proud of what they have done for everyone else. So as um, Pope Francis has told us, life is good when you're happy, Mm -hmm. but it's much better when others are happy because of you. Mm -hmm. So truly, if we all take that to heart, help each other, pull each other up, we can all rise Mm -hmm. up. And thank you so much for talking to me.
1: <laughs> I, I'm speechless. Right. Um, um, anyway, so... I, I have a lot of questions to ask you, but you all answered the questions that we have. Uh, but the, I know too, um, you know, moving forward through the pain of grief, uh, we know that there's no way to truly be prepared for the death of a spouse or a partner. And I've heard many things on how you're getting new strength, and the sharp is getting duller, uh, with regards to the the pain that you are experiencing. Are you beginning to see those any new strengths and capabilities, and enduring relationships with others? I'm hearing bits and pieces, but are you beginning to be? And I I my, my heart hurt when you said, I wanted to go with. Amy, and I hope it's not the thinking anymore. So is there anything else other than prayers that would help you move through through, and say, hey, I'm here um, alive because there is still a purpose?
2: Again, family is always important. As they surround you with love, they pull mm-hmm. you up friends are important really well meaning friends are important just a touch just a hug just a smile mm-hmm. is important that's why it's necessary to keep the social interaction it's so necessary because that's what keeps you alive and being busy mm-hmm. i ha- i tried to keep my mind Busy as can be. Believe me, I have a very small house. I changed the roof. I changed the windows. I changed the doors. I changed the paint. I changed the basement because I, I just had to do something. But now that everything is gone, okay, I need to focus on something else. So I haven't lost any. I try not to lose touch with anybody in P&A because I know that the work that we do is important. I believe in it. I believe in what we do. And again, I focus a lot more on family now. Mm -hmm. I focus myself on the grandchildren, on the children, on their welfare. And I try to occupy my mind with many things, but you can only realize that your body is not ready for many things that you want to do. So I try to step back, take a deep breath, and then Go into things that we try to tell others what to do. Do your mental exercises. Take a mental break. uh, Go for a walk. uh, Go out into the sun. uh, Reduce on the coffee. Turn Mm -hmm. on those music. Meditate. Mm -hmm. Try to take time for yourself. Take time to breathe. Phone a friend. Always Mm -hmm. have somebody at the other end. So I try not to be alone because I don't want to be lost in my thoughts alone. And the only time I allow myself to be alone is when I'm praying.
0: That is um, a wealth of information and good advice that you are sharing, Madeline, and I thank you for that. Um, And I hope those who are listening, who've gone through loss of family and friends um, could appreciate what you are sharing. Keeping busy, staying connected, um, having a purpose. Now there is a new COVID variant, the Omicron, and as you've mentioned, also that that's uh, the morbidity and the mortality rate continue to climb. A lot of people are still continuing to die. Uh, what would be your advice to those who are still hesitant to get the vaccine?
2: Believe in science. Mm-hmm. I believe I'm leaving proof of it. I had the antibodies because I, I got COVID last year. But then I had my first and second vaccinations and I had my booster dose already. So even if you get exposed or you, you got COVID, you probably will experience minor symptoms and you will survive it. As we hear from the reports and the data that are presented right now, whether it's Delta or Omicron variant, the ones that are in the hospital are those who are unvaccinated. Mm -hmm. So please forget about all your political affiliations. Believe in science. Believe in the decency of life. Believe in what works. And do this not only for yourself, for your family, but for the whole community. And this is the only way we can beat this pandemic. It may be here like the flu in the next years. We may have to have booster doses every year. But then if we manage to to conquer it by treating it just like the flu, get your vaccinations. Be armed with vaccinations. Be armed with science. So I beg you, value life, value your family, value your community, because that's the only way we could all survive.
1: Madeline, uh, this is going to be the last question. What do you think, uh, I mean, what can you share with the viewers that we have not asked the question?
2: That we haven't asked the question. What do you want to
1: share with our viewers that uh, that we haven't asked you yet?
2: COVID doesn't choose. It doesn't choose who you are. Mm -hmm. It affects everybody, young, Mm -hmm. old, older. It affects all professions. We know of doctors dying, attorneys, Mm -hmm. presidents, nurses, teenagers, It affects everybody. It does not select who you are or what political affiliations you have. It affects all of us. It affects all of humanity. So please believe when we say we can only conquer this together. And together, please arm yourself. I believe the questions are there. I believe science is out there. I believe the data has been presented to all of us. It's just up to us now. So choose life.
0: So Madeline, one of the initiatives that you have started is the COVID Task Force. Could you please share to our viewers what uh, is the COVID Task Force and what we've learned from it?
2: When we started noticing the effects of COVID to the whole population, we wanted to know how COVID is affecting our nurses. As Filipino nurses, we are all in the front lines. We know that there's many Filipino nurses in the ICUs, CCUs, CTICUs, ER, OR, cath labs. We're all there. We're all in the front lines and we're there morning, noon, and night. And as you saw in many reports, Filipino nurses have been videotaped holding the patient's hand as their family members died and FaceTiming the family. So we are their last link to their loved ones. But how did COVID affect the nurses? On the first year in 2020, when it was reported that there was about hundred deaths among nursing professionals across the USA, out of the hundred, 31 or 33 of them were Filipino nurses. Filipino nurses comprise only of 4% of all the nurses in America, yet of the fatalities from COVID, we comprise about 30%. So it's very disproportionate. Mm. So we needed to do something. So we started to ask the questions from each chapter of how does the COVID affect you? So from chapter in Florida to California to Hawaii, to, to the Middle States, we started gathering data of who is sick, mm-hmm. how many died, family members who died, and people that they know, and we started to tabulate them. And not only did we gather data about this, we wanted to know what can we do then as a mm-hmm. professional organization of the PNAA to help our nurses. That was the initial concern. So what did they need at the beginning? They needed PPEs, they needed masks, they needed gowns, they needed everything to protect them as it was uh, an airborne infection. So that was our concern. So first the PNAA fundraised and we distributed Mm -hmm. masks to all our 5,000 members all across America. Then we started to do fundraising events to raise money to do to um, host again seminars that would help our nurses how to maintain your physical well being we held a lot of those and then how to uh, ha- seminars about emotional and social well being if you remember we had Saturdays mm-hmm. with with our educator then May Guzman yeah. who since has left us. Uh, she hosted webinars on Saturdays, yoga webinars, um, spiritual seminars, exercises, and our nurses appreciated it because not only were we affected physically, it was a very stressful time. Nurses would call me crying on the 16th hour that there was nobody to relieve them. So not only are you physically and emotionally stressed, you are also having a lot of, uh, push and pull of mm-hmm. how do I protect my patients and how do I go home now and protect my family? So we mm-hmm. were in the middle of it and we needed to know how we could help our nurses. So we, we we started forming the formal COVID task force, which is now headed by Dr. Jenny Aying and co-chaired by Ramon Sumibkai. Mm-hmm. And it has members all across our four regions of PNAA and they have so many projects that helped fundraise and help support all the, all the plans that we had for the immediate. Um, relief of uh, of physical symptoms, then the next, the socioeconomic factors, then public health awareness that we were trying to do as PNAA. Mm -hmm. And now we started talking about the general health equity that was very pronounced at this point when everybody was having COVID uh, crisis. And now we are moving more into how do we protect the nursing workforce. So from little chapters to big regions, to the communities, to the whole nursing community, we had three-month plans, the six-month plans, the long-term plans, and we continue to do it because COVID hasn't left us. It's still here. and. As I was, my family was severely affected by us getting sick and my husband dying of it. You know, we, the scars will probably be there, but then programs like that would help with the healing process, Mm -hmm. would help with the stress relief process, would help with people who lost jobs would help with people whose husbands were laid off because of companies that closed during COVID. So it's, it's, it's a big encompassing issue and not mm-hmm. just the COVID itself. There's there's so much need for help from everywhere. And as nurses, we, we are helpful individuals, mm-hmm. no matter what events you put us, We do not think only of ourselves, but then again, we look to our left and to our right and say, what do our neighbors Mm -hmm. need at this time? I was a recipient of many, many graces and help from all of you that I do know that some are not as lucky as me to be able to receive those. So we reach out. We, We truly do. The PNAA chapters have really tried to reach out and go into the communities to see what they can do. So the task force is very alive, very dynamic, and they've been doing fundraising events every time. And they are now going into the second year.
0: Thank you, Madeline, Uh, you've been very gracious and kind. And and, um, thank you for the courage to share your story. Uh, I know that our listeners and followers, uh, viewers of this podcast uh, have appreciated this uh, sharing that you've done today. And that is all that we have for this episode. I wanted to thank our guests, Madeleine Yu, and my co-host, Mindy O'Fiana, our director and producer, Radnika Hudo, Carol Robles, the PNAA chair for communications and marketing, our advisor, PNAA foundation president, Nancy Hoff. And our executive producers, PNA President Dr. Mary Joy Garcia Dia, and PNA Executive Director Carmina Bautista. Join us every Wednesday here and rise up. Until then, keep on rising. See you next week. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. This publication was made possible by Cooperative Agreement cdc rfa ip 21 from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of CDC-HHS.